How many of you uh, how many of you would say you grew up going to church? A lot of you. So let's just assume for a minute that you have listened to one sermon or Bible lesson a week. Okay? Now that can be, I'm, I'm pretty broad, that can be chance standing up in the pulpit on Sunday morning, it can be you going to a youth group thing or a Bible study or or whatever, okay? But if you did one a week for the last 15 years, because most of you are at least 20, right? You would have listened to over 750 different sermons or Bible lessons, okay? If you listen to two a week because you go to church and Sunday school, because you're a good little boy and girl, for 15 years, that would be over 1,500 Bible lessons or sermons. Now, I've grown up in the church for a very, very long time, and I'm years old, and I counted up recently that I think that I have probably heard over 5,500 sermons or Bible lessons or Bible studies. And just so we're clear, if the Lord had not intervened in my life and saved me from my sin, every single one of those, every single one of the dozen Bible verses I memorized in Awana and BBS would have been a nail in my spiritual coffin because that is knowledge that I would have had leading to repentance, and yet I rejected it. So when we come to our passage this morning, I need us to recognize that you guys are in a good teaching church. You know the Bible. You have a Bible you can read on your phone or in your hands. We are well supplied, which means that there is a very high standard for us. Okay? It is really easy because we think we know it all, because we think we know all the verses, know all the doctrine, and we read good books. We think that we are self-righteous, that we really are the right kind of people, and it's easy to let that seep into our hearts. You see, it's my job as a preacher of God's Word that I get to speak to you in the same tone that the text speaks to us. And I'm going to warn you that last night was really comforting and encouraging, and this morning is really challenging. Okay? This is the convicting sermon. This is the condemning passage. And so it's your responsibility to sit there under the authority of the Word of God and honestly evaluate your own heart and say, one, uh, does my life and my heart accurately reflect each other? Or am I just a two-faced hypocrite? And do my life and heart together actually represent a love for God and a love for others and not just a love for myself? You see, God, God cares about what's on the inside of you. You understand that, right? Biblically, your heart, it says it's the wellspring of life. Everything about you comes from deep down inside of you. And God says he sees the heart, right? You remember 1 Samuel 16, where God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? He looks at our hearts, right? It matters what goes on in our hearts. And in our passage today, the beginning of Luke chapter 11, Jesus is having these interactions with the Pharisees and scribes. And and he starts and, and he's talking with him about different things. And they say, yeah, but we need more signs. We need more signs. We need more signs. As if he hasn't proven himself enough, right? And he finally looks at them and says, no, there will be no more signs for you because the people from the Old Testament are going to rise up and condemn this generation because you have so little excuse. I am here right now in front of you, the son of God preaching and doing miracles, and you reject me. And so in this interaction we're going to look at here in verses 37 through the end of the chapter, the verse 54, we're really going to see Jesus condemn the Pharisees and the scribes for, for their self-righteous hypocrisy. So let's call that our theme for, for the morning. Jesus condemns self-righteous hypocrisy. 
Jesus condemned self-righteous hypocrisy. So let's look at Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 37 to 54, and then we'll walk through it, okay? Luke eleven thirty-seven. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. But inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is, is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you... Love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said to you, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation." Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now there's a little bit of context running into this before we get to our main outline. So let's look. Verse 37, what's going on? He's talking. He finishes this interaction with the Pharisees and scribes, and then it says, when he had spoken, verse 37, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. Now, I think you guys know a Pharisee is, is one of these group, uh, is someone in this group of people who, who is extremely conservative, uh, politically and religiously, but they are, they are legalistic, so far, so much so, they think that they are earning their way to God by keeping a, a certain level of the law. Now, remember, like I said last night, not all Pharisees are the same Pharisees, right? It's not the same ten guys in every story, right? And apparently, this guy, uh, there's no mention in the text of any you know, malicious intent. It seems like this Pharisee is trying to be respectful, okay? And so he says, hey, come and have lunch with me. Let's talk some more. And so Jesus goes. Jesus goes. Now, the question is, why would Jesus go? Jesus knows them. Jesus knows this guy's heart. He knows that he's not going to agree with him on everything. Why is he going? Well, he's going so that he can be the source of truth. He can, he can communicate truth to this guy and call him to repentance. Here is our very first like Christ application here. It is good for you to have intentional relationships with unbelievers for the sake of sharing the gospel with them. Now, if you say, oh yeah, every friend I have is an unbeliever. They're horrible people and I love hanging out with them. Okay, well, that might be a problem, okay? But you can't just isolate yourself and say, yeah, I'm never going to talk to an unbeliever again. You're the only source of the gospel they might have. You need to spend time with them, not to be like them, but so that they might be like Christ. 
And so it starts off innocently enough. The Pharisee invites him to lunch, and he goes in, and he reclines at the table. Now, verse 38 tells us there's a problem, because when the Pharisee, the guy who's hosting, saw it, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed. He, he was surprised. He was, he was astonished, or he was, what's the opposite of impressed? He, he was unimpressed, okay? He, he was offended that Jesus would come in his house and be such an inconsiderate guest that he would sit down at the table without ceremonially washing. The question is, was Jesus wrong? Please, all of you say, no, Jesus was not wrong. Jesus is sinless. He, he wasn't rude. He wasn't inappropriate. He simply didn't wash the way the Pharisee expected him to wash. He didn't do what he wanted him to do. But notice it says ceremonially wash. This is, there's a word baptizo where we get the word baptism. And I think you guys understand both these ceremonial washings and even Christian baptism. First Peter says it's not about getting dirt off of your flesh. It's never about being physically clean, right? Baptism is not about taking a bath. Baptism is ceremonial. It means something. And so here, this, this ceremonial washing, it was, I'll be honest with you guys, it was, it was pretty ridiculous, okay? They would like hold their hands this way, and they would put like a teaspoon of water, and it would run down, and then someone else would do the other hand. I mean, it was a show, right? It had nothing to do with actually getting clean. Mark 7 tells us they did it because they were afraid they might have run into someone in the marketplace or accidentally touched something. They didn't want to be unclean for the meal. You can see how legalistic these people got in their thinking, saying, oh, if I just do this, God will be happy with me, right? So the question is, would it have been wrong for Jesus not to wash? Obviously not. Would it have been wrong for Jesus to wash? I think we can say, no, if he chose to do that, that would have been fine. But, but he's making a very clear point here, right? And so in the rest of the passage, we're going to see seven woes. You saw those in some of the verses, right? W-O-E, woe, to the Pharisees and scribes. He's condemning them and, and their hypocritical hearts, their hypocritical self-righteousness inside of them and saying it's not okay. So what does woe mean? Well, woe is an exclamation of, of pain or distress. It's, you know, we don't really have a good English word we use a lot. It's like alas or something, but we don't say that, okay? But woe is, it, it's something as bad as going to happen to you. And so in Luke 6, he says, Woe to you, rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry, right? It's looking ahead and saying something is not going to go well for you. Sometimes that's a, an act of judgment like there in Luke 6, but sometimes it's in Luke 21 where it's just something sad. It's looking at the end times and saying, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress. It's not going to go well for you. Woe to you. In this context, I think it's a clear pronouncement of judgment on these people from Jesus. You are heading toward destruction and judgment if you don't change the way you think and live. So is Jesus just loving, condemning their hypocrisy and hoping that they go or head towards destruction and judgment? No. God always de desires for the wicked to repent, right? Ezekiel 33, 11, the Lord God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. God always desires for the wicked to turn from their sin and repent and be restored to him. But Jesus is saying, if you do not repent, this is what will happen. Judgment will be on you. So, seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Seven, we're going to call them seven condemnations of the self-righteous. Okay? And the first one we're going to see, Jesus condemns hypocritical hearts. Jesus condemns hypocritical hearts. Look at verse 39. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, 
but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. He said, you, you clean. Now, this is funny. This is a different word than the, the ceremonial washing. Okay, They were actually trying hard to clean the outside of the club, cup and of the platter, right? Uh, he's, the Pharisees are a lot of things, but they're not lazy. Okay, They actually did work very, very hard to clean up their lives, the external things, so that they could look really good. He says, you work hard. You clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. Your, your life on the outside actually looks pretty good. But the inside of you is different. The inside of you is full of robbery and wickedness. We've used this word hypocrisy, right? Merriam-Webster defines the English word hypocrisy as a feigning to be what one is not or behavior that contradicts what one claims to believe, right? They were saying one thing, doing one thing on the outside, but their hearts were completely different. Maybe you know someone like this. Maybe you know someone who pretended to be your friend for a long time, and then it turned out in the moment of truth that they weren't at all. Maybe you know someone who pretends to be really righteous and good in front of their, their church leaders and their parents, and, but you know them in private and they're just worldly people. Or maybe you're one of these people, that your life and what is going on in your heart are fundamentally different things. You see, Jesus says, they look good. He's got this analogy of cleaning the cup and the platter. But he, he quickly drops the analogy and says, let's get to the, right to the point. Inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. He highlights two sins here in their hearts. One, robbery. That's In Hebrews 10, it's translated the seizure of property. It's, it's taking things from others by force. Well, why does he highlight this? Well, Luke 16 tells us that the Pharisees, as a group, struggled with the sin of the love of money. They pursued money no matter what the cost. They set up these rules and regulations so that the people would have to give more and they would receive kickbacks from the temple services. And really, this at the heart of it is the sin of greed, right? They just wanted more for themselves. He says they're full of robbery or, or greed. That's the external sin. But what is the more fundamental issue? He says they're full of wickedness. This is just a, a blanket term for, for evil, an absence of morality. These are just sinful men. They were wicked, evil, bad, sinful people. It was shown by their greed, by their robbery, but ultimately the issue was in their heart, right? Why was Jesus being so unkind? Why, why was he being so blunt and harsh with them? Doesn't, doesn't he love them? Of course he does. It's loving to speak the truth to people, right? It's loving to say, hey, I can't let you call that sin not sin. The Bible says it is. Now, we don't get to call things sin that aren't sin, but we do get to say what the Bible says. God is too holy for us to ignore sin in our lives and the lives of our friends and brothers and sisters. In fact, what's funny is it's God's character that he brings up in the next verse, 1140, verse 40. He says, you foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, he says, you are, you're foolish, you're ignorant, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're pretending like the outside and the inside doesn't have to match, even though God made both of them. The one who made the outside made the inside also. Matthew Henry says it this way, Did not God, who made us these bodies, and they are fearfully and wonderfully made, make us these souls also, which are more fearfully and wonderfully made? Now, if he made both, he justly expects for us to take care of both 
and therefore not only wash the body, which he is the former of, and make the hands clean, but wash the spirit, which he is the father of, and get the leprosy in the heart cleansed. You don't get to look one way on the outside and have your heart be something fundamentally different. God made both. So verse 41, he says, Give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. Charity is the idea of, of generosity, of giving donations or alms, right? In Luke 12, it talks about selling your possessions and giving to charity. He says you, you can't have a heart of greed and robbery and taking things by force. You can't have a heart of evil and wickedness, but rather you need to have a heart of, of generosity, of compassion for other people. This is the kind of heart that pleases God. Well, how can they do this? How can they have a heart of charity? Well, they're good Pharisees, so they're probably saying, okay, we need another rule. We need, we need something, to, a mechanism for us to make sure that we have these kinds of hearts. We need to try a little harder. But you and I both know that's, that's not how it works, right? Can you change your heart? No. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. We need God to give us a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, he will give us a new heart and put a new spirit within us. Only then, if God has actually changed your heart to have new affections, new desires, then you can have a heart that is concerned about other people legitimately. You see, without the work of God in our hearts, we're talking about the Pharisees and scribes. They're terrible people. But if God hasn't intervened in your life and given you a new heart, you are full of robbery and wickedness and evil. That's who we are. But... If we repent and come to Christ in faith, we'll be saved, we'll be given new hearts. And then look what he says, give that which was within as charity and all things are clean for you. Uh, in 2 Timothy 1, Paul talks about how he lives life before God with a clear conscience. He serves God with a clear conscience. You can do that. As a Christian, you can live a life that is honestly, legitimately pleasing to God in the way that you live. If you are in Christ, you can do that and God will honestly be pleased with you. All things are clean for you. You can serve God with a clear conscience. So the applications here are pretty simple, right? God doesn't care about the outside of you if the inside is wicked. I don't care if you come to, come to church every Sunday and you memorize verses and you show up to Brands and da 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 God doesn't care. If your heart is wicked and evil and you hate Him, you can do whatever you want on the outside. It's not changing His mind. Your heart has to be made new. And then you can actually learn to show compassion and love to others. You can love God and love others as yourself. So how can we be like Christ in this situation? Well, obviously you and I don't know each other's hearts, right? We're not like Christ in that way. But you and I do know each other's lives. You guys hang out enough. You, you see what's going on. And the question is, are you okay with your friends here living double lives and saying, well... I know, I know at work he says this and talks like this and thinks like this. And, but, you know, he comes to church, so he's probably okay. Can't be that way. If you really love someone who claims to be a believer, you'll go to them with grace and compassion and patience and say, brother, sister, I love you too much to let you do this. You can't do this. This is what the Scripture says. Now, if you noticed, I said there were seven woes, and there was technically not a woe in that first section. I'm missing a woe. But it is in Matthew 23, and so I'm counting this one as a woe. And also, I think it's for a reason, because I think Luke is using that one as really the foundation for all the rest. So we're going to go through some of these a little bit more quickly, okay? 
The second woe he brings on them, verse 42, Jesus condemns hollow worship. Jesus condemns hollow worship. Woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. You guys know that tithing is the Old Testament version for giving a tenth, and so some of the Old Testament laws had them giving a tenth of something. Leviticus 27.30 says to tithe the land, the seed of the land, the fruit of the tree. It's the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. Now you'll notice that in that Leviticus passage, it doesn't say to tithe houseplants and herbs. It says to tithe the fruit of the land, the crops. Okay, And so these, these Pharisees, they went above and beyond. They said, oh, we're going to tithe everything. We're going to tithe even our tiny little herbs in our house. So the question is, do you take the first leaf and then you wait until there's nine more and then you take the eleventh one? Or do you wait until there's ten and give the tenth one? I'm, it's ridiculous, right? You guys see where I'm going with this. Why on earth are you tithing houseplants? That's the point. They're doing these things and yet, look at verse 42, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. You, you neglect or ignore justice and the love of God. Fascinating that he chose these two things because I think they're the opposite of what he just said about their hearts, this, the robbery and the wickedness. Here he says you're ignoring justice and the love of God. This is what you need to do. You need to care about justice, doing what is right and good for other people. You need to care about the love of God. You have evil in your hearts. Instead, you need to have the love of God so that you can love God and love others well. 1 John 3.17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You can't say you really love God in your heart and not love others in real, tangible, practical ways. You don't get that option. The Bible takes it away. You can't say you love God and not love others. He says, but you disregard justice and love God. Oh, you're, you're doing really good at tithing that tenth mint leaf, and you're not loving other people, and you're not caring about what's good and right for them. <laughs> but I love how he finishes. Look at verse 42. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, if we were in this situation, if we were Jesus, we would say, hey, you are tithing mint leaves, and you're disregarding justice and the love of God. What would we say? We would say, stop tithing the mint leaves until you figure out the love of God thing. You know what Jesus says? He says, do both. You don't get to, to get rid of the little obedience until you get the big obedience figured out. You get to obey. You get to do what God says in the little things and in the big things. You can't just neglect some things so that you can do others. They're all necessary. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. And just so we're clear, he doesn't say that tithing is bad. Okay, uh, We usually use tithing, the tenth idea of saying giving uh, to the Lord. We don't have to give a tenth. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 9 says we should be giving as, as what's purposed in our heart, as a cheerful giver. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 makes it clear that we should give consistently. We should put aside and save and give so that no collections are made when, when I come. It would be a really bad idea for your church for Chance to have to stand up every Sunday and be like, all right, guys. The bills are coming out this week if y'all could help with that, okay? If he has to do that, you've got an unhealthy church. Rather, as Christians, it's our delight to give to our local churches so that the ministry can continue. And I do like 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, because it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you put aside and save, which means it should be consistent and planned, not, 
oh yeah, oh I gave one time last year. I should probably do that again sometime. No, no, no. It should be a part of your life, a part of your, your ministry there. But it also says that you should give as someone may prosper. The idea is that some of you have a lot and some of you have a little. And God expects you to give according to what you have. Which means if you have nothing, which is probably most of you here because you're poor people, that's okay, like me. You know what you give? Give a very little bit. And God is honored by doing that. You see, Jesus isn't condemning the tithing, the, the obedience and the little things. He's condemning their hypocritical hearts that they think the obedience and the little legalistic things are going to make them right before God, and they don't actually love God. You see, we can't have obedience without a right heart, but we can't sacrifice real obedience just for other things that we think are better. So how do we, how do we be like Christ in this? Well, similar to the last time, but, but do you really care that your friends and brothers and sisters in Christ are actually worshiping God from the heart? Or do you just care that they're checking the box? Hey man, how you doing? Did you read your Bible this week? Oh yeah, read it. Cool. All right, that's it. That's all I need to know. Are you really engaging with each other and trying to discern, are we living lives that are honoring God? All right, let's go to the next one. Verse 43, Jesus condemns haughty approval seeking. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. This, this is awesome. The Pharisees, you love the chief seats in the synagogues. Uh, may, I hope you don't do this at your church. Do you have the, the old school Baptist, like where the deacon board sits in chairs behind the pulpit? You do that anymore? Oh, come on, Chance. <laughs> this is kind of the idea. When they would go to the synagogue, the, the very important people, the most holy people, they would get to sit in the front and look out at everyone else, right? Everyone would have to look at them during the whole service. They love that. They love being the ones who got to sit up in the chief seats. They love the, the respectful greetings out in the marketplaces. And just a, this isn't like a, hey, how are you? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Not that kind of respectful greeting. This is, oh, great Rabbi Eliezer, the exegete of the Torah. Right? I mean, it was, it was just elaborate and obnoxious, and, and they loved it, right? Every time they were in public and someone would recognize them, and it's this whole thing about how wonderful they are. Haughty approval-seeking. You see, it's really easy for us, even as Christians, to want the approval of others, to want the praise of others. Why? It feels good. And in some ways, that's right. You, you should want other godly people to be proud of you for living godly lives. But if you're doing it so that your leaders think that you are more holy than you might actually be, you've got a problem, right? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says that when they were giving to the poor, these hypocrites, they would do it in sounding a trumpet before them so that they would be honored among men. But he says, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. If you are doing things in your life, even good things in your life, so that you get praised by people, God says that's all you get. If you want the praise of people, you can have it, but you don't get God's as well. You see that? You can't go after the things of the world and say, I want people to love me and I also want God to love me too. That's not how it works. So even for you in your life, just, just real practically, why do you do the things that you do? Again, even the good things. Why do you show up early to church to help serve? Why, why are you reading your Bible every week? Is it because you want to know God and who He is and Jesus Christ whom He has sent? Or is it because when you get to Bereans, you want to be able to say, I read my Bible every week so everybody should be proud of me? There's a big difference there. In our hearts, right? Jesus condemns this, this approval-seeking, wanting to be noticed and pleasing to men. Number four, he condemns their harmful influence. 
Verse 44, Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs. The people who walk over them are unaware of it. You're like concealed tombs or, or unmarked graves. Now remember last night we talked about how in Numbers 19, if you touched a coffin or a grave or a dead person, that you were unclean, right? And so what would happen was when it was time for the festivals in Jerusalem, they would send workers out into the fields and they would whitewash all of the graves so that no one would accidentally walk over one coming into Jerusalem and then that person's unclean and then they touch people and they're unclean and the whole temple's unclean and it's a big mess, right? And so they would whitewash these tombs so that people wouldn't, wouldn't walk over them. But Jesus says, you are like concealed tombs. You're, you're like the unmarked graves, okay? What is he saying? <laughs> saying people walk over them and are unaware of it. People walking on them don't know. People are getting unclean by being around you, and they're unaware of it. You see, the idea here is that the Pharisees are, are unknowingly corrupting all of the people around them with their legalistic influence. Their teachings and their commitments to these things are bleeding out into the people in their lives. They're, they're passing on this disease of, of hypocrisy and sinful legalism. You see, the, their priorities are usually caught, not taught, right? The people around them are being influenced to think the same way that they are. So the question for you and me is if someone followed you around in your daily life and went to work with you and went to school with you and hung out at home with you, and they started to be like you, and they started to think like you, and they started to talk like you, would that mean necessarily that they were more holy and pleasing to God or not. You see, if your influence, intentionally or unintentionally, is causing people to love God, praise Him for that. But if your life and your influence on other people is causing them to walk in subtle patterns of sin that you've tolerated in your own life, God hates that. Jesus said they had these evil hearts and their external acts weren't enough to save them, and now they're even leading other people into sin. And just so we're clear, uh, let me talk to you popular kids for a minute. Everybody wants to hang out with you and be around you all the time. God is not tolerant of you leading people into sin. He's not. Luke 17, he said to the disciples, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if what? A millstone was hung around your neck and cast into the sea than if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. If your life is the influence that makes someone else stumble and sin, God will hold you accountable for that. The harmful influence they had. Jesus condemns them for this, this hypocrisy, this self-righteousness in their lives. Now, in verse 45, there's a little bit of a transition because someone interrupts Jesus. The lawyer, One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Now, the difference between a Pharisee and a lawyer is this. A Pharisee is a group of people who are committed to keeping a certain level of the law, right? They, they are overly legalistic and conservative in what they're trying to do. A lawyer, or sometimes called a scribe, is someone who literally gets paid. It is their job to know the Old Testament law, okay? This is what they do. So, the Pharisees, you know, you know the lawyers, are they're the head coach of the football team. They're putting together the game plan and saying, this is what we do. The Pharisees are the star quarterback, right? They're out there championing it and executing the plan. The, or, or maybe the lawyers are like the songwriter, right? They write the song and then the Pharisees are the recording artists. They're making it popular, okay? But when it comes down to it, 
If you walk up to a recording artist and trash their song, who also is offended? The one who wrote the song, right? And so we see, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Uh, R. Kent Hughes said, the guy might have as well have said, stood up and said, Jesus, hit me, right? I mean, he's like, hey, hey, hey. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's another thing, right? You offend us when you say these things. Very quick application from that. When you receive correction, are you the one that stands up and says, hey, I'm offended? Are you the one that's humble and teachable? Or, or what about, how can we be like Christ in this? Did he back down when he was challenged? He said, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to offend anybody. No, he stuck to his guns and says, you don't understand the truth and you need to. So he condemned the Pharisees for four issues, and now these last three he really directs at the scribes, at the lawyers. And so, sorry, it's down there, heavy-handed double standards. Jesus condemns their heavy-handed double standards, verse 46. Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear. Woe to you lawyers, because, this is awesome, literally, for you burden them with burdensome burdens. The idea of a burden here is translated in Acts 27 as a ship's cargo. All right, I looked it up. The Guinness World Record for someone lifting weight is a backlift of over 5,000 pounds. Okay. Now, if you this obviously this is a modern illustration, but but hang with me. Uh, you know those big shipping containers that they put on the big barges and go across the ocean, and they're in every spy movie where they open them up and it's not in there. Whatever was supposed to be in there, you, got, you guys know what I'm talking about. You can rent those, by the way, just as anybody can. You get them in 25 foot increments or 50 foot increments. Anyway, side note, uh, Google, right? So this guy, Guinness World Record, he can lift 5,000 pounds. A shipping container on average weighs over 50,000 pounds. So imagine if the strongest man in the world were strapped to a shipping container. Is he going anywhere? The answer is no. They burden them with heavy loads. They put things on them that they cannot carry. It's like if someone strapped you to a shipping container and said, here, walk around and do your life with this. The scribes were responsible for creating all of these rules and regulations and policies and procedures so that the normal average Jewish person had no hope of keeping what they thought the law said. If you really wanted to please God, if you really wanted to keep the Torah, they said you had to follow all of these things. It's like they were all strapped to these shipping containers. They couldn't live real life and honor God because they were trying to keep all of these minutiae. So the question is, well, how are the lawyers able to do this? With all of these rules and, and, and laws, how were they able to keep it all? What's the answer? They weren't. And they weren't even trying, Right? You burden them with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You're not even trying to keep the same rules you're imposing on everyone else. right? It'd be like if Chance stood up and said, hey, you guys should read your Bible every day, ten times a day. And you're like, oh man, I just, I just can't do a Chance. How do you do it? And he's like, I don't have to do it. I'm the pastor. What are you talking about? I went to seminary. I don't have to read my Bible all the time. You just got to do it. Right? They're just self- they're, they're imposing these these horrible regulations on the people and saying, if you want to please God, you've got to do what we say, and yet not even trying to lift them themselves. They weren't trying to do it in their own lives. They weren't trying to be a help to the people that they were teaching. Is that what serving God is really like? The world says that, right? Yeah, Christianity, it's just a whole bunch of rules you got to keep. It's just a bunch of yeses and nos. Is that what it is? 
course not. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're sitting here under the sound of my voice and thinking, man, being a good Christian sounds hard. Well, on the one hand, it is. It's a life of sacrifice for the good of yourself, for the good of others, for the glory of God. But if you're sitting here, it sounds hard to do all this stuff. You've got a misunderstanding of what Jesus expects of you. Because serving the Lord, doing it with the right heart, is easy. Serving the Lord is easy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. We want to live our lives in this way to honor Him. So a couple applications here. One, our standard is not what some legalistic teacher puts out. Our standard is the Bible, always. Okay, I was telling the guys, one of my pet peeves is when, when internet bloggers and influencers say, hey, this is sin, and they don't have a Bible verse to back it up, then it's not. They don't get to decide that. God does. We have a standard in the Bible. So, Never let someone else's standards exceed that, and never let your standards exceed the authority of the Scriptures. Okay, 2 Corinthians is clear, not beyond what is written. We have the sufficient Word of God. Another application is, just personally, don't hold yourself and don't hold someone else, well, don't hold someone else to a standard you're not willing to meet yourself, right? That was the issue with these lawyers. They're putting it on other people and saying, you've got to do this, but I'm not going to do it. This is, one, this is basic Christianity. It's also just good leadership, right? If you're not willing to do something, don't expect other people to do it as well. It's a double standard, and it's unbiblical. Examine yourself and, and then live according to the Scripture. Number six, we've got to start moving here. Jesus condemns history-repeating sins. Now, this section might appear to be a little bit complicated, but it's, it's really not. Let's walk through it. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses, and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. You, you are witnesses and approvers of these things, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. You see, they were building these monuments and these great tombs, and they were, quote-unquote, honoring the prophets, honoring these people, and yet, Jesus says, I'm looking at your life and you're not submitting to anything that the prophets have written. You're sinning in the same way your fathers did. You hate what they said, but you're building these monuments as if that's better. The prophets were sent to, to bring God's truth to the people. They brought it and said, thus saith the Lord, and they would bring the truth to them. And how did the people respond? They persecuted them. They killed them. They were sinning in the same way as their father, even though they were building these big monuments, right? So, quick application for that is, do you do things because the Scripture says to do them, or do you do things because, well, you've just always done it that way, and your parents always did it that way, and their parents always did it that way, and it may not be biblical, it may be biblical or not. Who knows? You can't do something sinful just because you've always done it, or because your friends do it, or whatever. Verse 49 says, This reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and they will persecute the wisdom of God, this was God's wise plan for this to happen, that they would be persecuted. God, in His wisdom, sent the prophets and the apostles to be witnesses, and yet the people hated it, right? We know from the Scripture that James, the apostle, was put to death with the sword, <coughs> likely a reference to beheading. There's good traditions for a lot of the 
fates of the other apostles. The apostle Peter was most likely crucified upside down in Rome. Matthew probably suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword. The apostle John was on the Isle of Patmos. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown from the southeast pinnacle of the temple, and when he survived the fall, he was beat to death with clubs. Philip was crucified in Hierapolis. James, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified in Syria. Thaddeus was crucified in Edessa. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Britain. Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, was a missionary to Asia and supposedly was flayed to death by a whip. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece, and he preached for two days until he died. The Apostle Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India. Matthias, the Apostle chosen to replace Judas, was stoned and then beheaded. The Apostle Paul was beheaded by the Emperor Nero. God sent messengers of the truth. And how did the people respond? They hated them. They persecuted them. They killed them. So in verse 50, the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Now we're going to come back to that idea of charge. God is going to hold it accountable. He's going to require it of them. But notice verse 51, from the blood of Abel, Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed his brother Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. That's 2 Chronicles 24. The way the Hebrew Bible is laid out, Genesis to 2 Chronicles, the entire Bible, from Abel to the blood of Zechariah. This is all of those who were killed, the prophets of God. He says, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Now, we need a theological aside. Is God really going to charge people for sins that someone else committed? No. Ezekiel 18 is very clear. You can go read it if you need to. Ezekiel 18 is very clear that the father is not charged for the sins of the son. The son is not charged for the sins of the father, but each one, the one who sins, will die. Okay? The punishment is for the one. So the question is, what does Jesus mean when he says all of this will be charged against this generation? I think he means three things here. Ready? Number one, they are going to be charged. They are going to be held accountable before God for what they should have known. Okay, Luke chapter 12, remember the parable of the slave who knew his master's will and he didn't get ready or act in accord with his will. He receives many lashes, but the one who was ignorant, the one who didn't know, even though he committed deeds worthy of a flogging, he only receives a few. God holds you accountable for the knowledge that you have, which, by the way, is really scary that we've listened to thousands of sermons in our life and memorized verses because we are held accountable for the knowledge that we have. Which is why Jesus also cares that they should have known things. Remember how many times he says to the Pharisees, Have you not read? Do you not know? You have access to the truth and you're ignoring it. So what does he mean that he's going to charge it to them? Well, one, they're charged for what they should have known. Two, they're charged because they're repeating the same sins as their fathers. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, remember when God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations. You're like, whoa, he's visiting, he's bringing the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation of children. How is that just? Well, you didn't finish the verse. The verse says, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Why is he punishing the fourth generation? Because they hate him just like the first generation did, right? And so these Pharisees and scribes, they hate him just like the Old Testament people did. But I think the number one reason that he's going to hold them accountable for this and charge them for this is, number three, this generation is about to execute who? 
the prophet, Jesus Christ, right? Deuteronomy 18, the prophet that will be raised up from their countrymen like you. The one who, who will have God's words in his mouth. We see that in John 17, 8. God warned them thousands of years ago that someone would come and that they could not reject his prophet. Or he says in Deuteronomy 18, I will require it of him. He told them that they would he would require it of them in Deuteronomy. And they're about to kill Jesus. And therefore he will hold them accountable for that. So the question is, how does this apply to you and me? Well, are there sin patterns in your life that, that you are tolerating in your life that have gone on for a long time because you've always done them that way? Or because your family does, or your friends do? Sin is not okay, no matter what, no matter where it came from. The other application here is, are you dishonoring God by rejecting the truth that you should know? We talked last night. We, we've all got Bibles on our phones and iPads and on the internet and in print. I mean, some of you guys probably got 10 Bibles sitting on your shelf, right? Like I do. And if you don't know it, God's going to say, have you not read? Don't you know what the scripture says? And so he has one more woe in verse 52. Jesus condemns hindering the pursuit of truth. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves didn't enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have, you've taken away the key. What's a key? Well, a key is a means of access, right? It's what opens the door for something. What's this key of knowledge? Well, Luke 1, 77 says that John the Baptist came to give Jesus' people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin. What's the key of knowledge? It's, it's the truth of the Scripture. It's, it's the Gospel. And so here, uh, these scribes and lawyers, what? They, they knew the Scripture. They knew the Old Testament law backwards and forwards. They had the key with them. And it says that they took it away. It'd be like if, if you were dying of poison, and I had the antidote right here, and I looked you right in the face, and I poured it out on the ground. That's what they were doing to these people. They had the, the idea, they had the knowledge of the gospel in the Old Testament the, that the Messiah would come and save them and they weren't sharing it, they were throwing it away. But this is even worse. It says, you yourselves didn't enter and you hindered those who were entering. Not only are you poisoned and I'm pouring out the antidote, I'm poisoned and I'm pouring out the antidote and throwing it away. They needed it just as much. And not only did they throw it away, they hindered those who were trying to get it. This is a very interesting application because remember, these people are not saved, right? Pharisees and scribes, he just said their hearts were unclean and full of evil. Okay? If you're an unbeliever, you will be judged by God first for rejecting the invitation of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to save you from your sins and you walked away and said no. You will also be judged, if you're an unbeliever who knows the gospel, for not sharing the gospel and hindering other people from coming. He says, woe to you, for you are hindering those who wish to enter. So for you and me, how many Bible verses do we know, backwards and forwards, that we're not sharing with other people? How many of us are even trying to evangelize? How many of us are even praying for opportunities for that? How many of us are even praying for our friends and families who are unbelievers that need the gospel? This is their eternity, and we don't care. You know, a friend of mine preached a sermon on the pearl of great price. You remember that story, Matthew 13? 
And what's interesting about that story is, is he goes and he sells everything he has to get this great pearl. And what does he do with it? Well, he goes and sells it to get more stuff. No. He sells everything he has to get the pearl. Why? Because it's worth it. Because it's worth it just to have. The gospel is worth that much, and you and I have it, and the world needs it. What are we going to do about it? Are you and I keeping others from knowing the truth of the Scriptures by our apathy, by our words and examples? People looking at you and saying, yeah, whatever gospel you believe in, I don't want that. So how can we be like Christ here? Well, notice that He has perfect biblical knowledge, and He's using it to call people to repentance and holiness, not using it to burden them with unreasonable things and pushing them away from the truth. Verse 53 says, When he left, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile. They were angry at him, and they began to, to literally interrogate him on much. It says they started to plot against him, lying in wait. It's the idea of, of surprise attacking someone. And it says they were hoping to catch him. They're, they were literally on the hunt to get Jesus in trouble, hoping that he would say something to get him in trouble. Why? Why did they hate him so much? You know, we, we usually think it's the Pharisees who are Jesus' mortal enemies here. Actually, when we get to closer to his death, it's the scribes, the, the lawyers here, the ones that are pushing for his death. Why? Why do they hate him so much? Because their hearts are full of self-righteousness, and they think that they are righteous when they're not, and Jesus called them on it. And he said, no, 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 no. You need a fundamentally new heart. They were hypocrites. They were self-righteous. They thought that they knew everything. They thought that they could put their standards on other people. They were misusing and abusing the Word of God and the lives of the people they were supposed to care for. But guys, it can't be like that with us. We have been blessed so much to have the Scripture, to have good teaching, to have good books to read so we can understand who God is and what He's like and what He expects of us. We are held to a high standard. And I just beg you guys, and, and me as well, to examine our hearts. Because if our hearts are fundamentally different from what we're trying to be like out here, God knows. He knows. And He condemns this hypocrisy and this self-righteousness in us. But rather, He says what? You need a new heart and give that which is within us charity. Have a heart of humility and compassion and generosity. And then what? Everything's clean. You serve God with a clear conscience and you use your knowledge of the Scripture that He's given you for the good of yourself, for the good of other people, sharing the Gospel and not hindering them from coming to the knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. God, thank You for the time. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You love us enough to tell us the hard truth. And I pray that it would be convicting to us that we would live lives that are, are clean, that that are in good conscience before you, that we would use our knowledge of the Scripture to, to share the Gospel, to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to push all of us to be more and more like Him. Thank you for the time. Pray in your name. Amen.